Before we start, a warning that this episode contains some especially horrifying medieval deaths. So please, do listen with care. The dungeon is dank and cold. It echoes with the grim sounds of its prisoners and their torments. Dirty water drips from the ceilings of cramped cells. Groans of pain mingle with the squeaks of rats. From time to time, there's a clanking of chains as one of the inmates tries to change position, easing the pressure of lying on sores that have developed on their arms and legs. Somewhere above them, doors slam and keys are jangled. But the people held here have given up hoping that these sounds signal they're about to be released. Even if they were, they would probably be too weak to stand up and stagger out of this hellhole. Food rations are meagre at best. For one prisoner, rations are worse than meagre. They're non-existent. Matilda de Bruges has lost count of the days since she was thrown into this awful place. In that time, she's been given nothing at all to eat. At first, Matilda had been outraged. She's a great noble woman of England, used to sleeping in stunning palaces, wearing luxurious clothes and being served the finest meals money can buy. Until recently, she lived one of the most comfortable lives imaginable in early 13th century Europe. Then in her mid-fifties, she found herself languishing in a rank, dark cell, denied even the most basic comforts. It was a terrible shock. Yet as the time has passed, days and nights melding into one endless stretch, Matilda's shock has turned to despair and worse. As she sits, racked by the tortures of hunger, she feels her mind dissolving. She shifts where she sits with her back against the cell wall and her chains scrape the floor. She strokes the hair of her eldest son, a young man named William, who is lying with his head in her lap. As she runs her fingers across his head, she shivers. The cell is cold. Her whole body is cold, and coldest of all is William. He's been dead for several days. Matilda doesn't know whether it was the hunger that killed him or some disease he caught down here. But he's dead all the same, and Matilda knows that unless something miraculous happens, she's going to die soon too. It's all because of one man, John king of England. She used to consider John a friend, or if not a friend, at least someone who had her family's best interests at heart. Then everything changed, because of something that John did. Something Matilda knew he did. That's why he's left her in this dungeon, and thrown away the key. A pang of hunger rips through her whole body, so fiercely that she moans. She's dying. She can feel her life ebbing away from her with every weak beat of her heart. In her sick, desperate state, she only sees one option left open to her. 
What people find when they finally open the cell door is so disturbing we still have records of it today. And the barons of England are so appalled at John's excesses that the country is set on a path towards a political earthquake so huge that we still feel the aftershocks 800 years later. Has John finally gone too far? I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a Dynasty to Die For, Season 3, Episode 6, The Vendetta. Of all John's personal deficiencies, the one trait that seems to shock his contemporaries the most is his cruelty. He isn't just harsh or stern or strict, he's vindictive, mean-spirited and capable of the most astonishing brutality. If John feels he's been threatened or thwarted and he gets the chance to take revenge, he goes in hard. Already in this season, we've heard how he starved 25 knights to death in Corfe Castle as punishment for supporting his teenage nephew Arthur of Brittany's rebellion. Then, of course, there's Arthur himself. When John's counsellors refused to blind and castrate the lad, John got steaming drunk, took him out in a boat, murdered him and threw his body into a river. Or so the story goes. These aren't one-off lapses of character. For John, murderous cruelty is a lifestyle, a passion. If he wasn't a king, we'd think of him as a serial killer. And among his most notorious victims are assorted members of the Bruce family, including young William and his poor old mother, Matilda. The Bruises really are, for a time, among John's closest political companions. Members of his inner circle. That counts for nothing, though, once John turns against them. And I think what happens to them is a prime example of John's general approach to kingship. It's a style of ruling which, at this point in our story, is threatening to drive his reign onto the rocks. So what caused John to turn with such spite on some of his closest allies? To understand, it's worth setting out who the bruises are. They're what we might call a classic Anglo-Norman family who've made good under the Plantagenets. They had a bit of land in Normandy, but they extended it by building up huge estates sprawling across England, Wales and Ireland during the reigns of Old Henry and Richard the Lionheart. William de Breuse Sr., the head of the family, Matilda's husband, doesn't have the title of Earl, but he has everything else you'd expect from a top-flight baron, including, at one point, the confidence of King John. He gets really close to John after 1202 and that incredible drama at Mirabeau, when John, in rare heroic mode, rescues his elderly ma, Eleanor of Aquitaine, from Arthur of Brittany's siege. William is in the thick of the action at Mirabeau and helps take many of the most valuable prisoners, 
In fact, we met him in this podcast before. He's one of the two Williams who captured Arthur and handed him over to John. Importantly, he's also one of the few people who seems to know what happens to Arthur in the aftermath. You could say he quite literally knows where the bodies are buried. But that means someone else knows too, because William talks to his wife, Matilda. He tells her things. She knows what he knows. That will come back to haunt the bruises in the most hideous way imaginable. How it happens, though, isn't totally straightforward. The thing about being a big-time player under the Plantagenets, and John in particular, is this. It's expensive. The way England is set up, when you inherit or take over a big tract of land or a title, you have to have it rubber-stamped by the royal government. That's a legacy from what we can loosely call the feudal system. To make a very complex setup very simple, the principle is, if you want to enjoy the privilege of being a big dog, you have to pay the king for his blessing. How much you pay the king isn't an exact science. Mostly it amounts to whatever the king feels like. The king might grant you a nice juicy territory somewhere and set the cost of it at maybe a hundred or a few thousand pounds. But if he likes you, he won't actually make you stump up the money immediately. Maybe he won't even make you hand it over at all. Or maybe he'll just call in his debt when he's broke. William de Bruce is an interesting example of how this works in practice. He's one of John's cronies, so he ends up being granted lots of parcels of land and the titles that go with them. That's good, right? What's less good is that as he's amassing all these fine things, he's also running up a gigantic tab with the crown. By 1208, his debt is pushing £3,000. Today, that would be tens of millions. It's a very precarious position to be in, and it makes William de Bruce heavily dependent on John's favour. Then, in 1208, around the time John is falling out with the Pope and England is being placed under interdict, Matilda de Bruce does something incredibly dangerous. John has started pestering her husband for repayments on some of his debts to the Crown. He sent his officers to the Bruce home to ask that they hand over several of their children as hostages to guarantee that they're good for what they owe. Matilda, who has more than a dozen children, balks at this. Plainly, she trusts John a lot less than her husband does. She snaps at the royal heavies that she'll be damned if she's handing her kids over to John because they'll end up going the same way as Arthur. That might be true, but it's a really, really bad idea to say so out loud. Even if it's widely known, or strongly suspected, that John murdered his nephew, no one in their right mind would talk about it publicly. Once those words have left Matilda's mouth, it's already too late. It takes no time at all for it to get back to John himself, and he instantly goes into full vendetta mode. Whatever affection he ever had for the bruises evaporates like a drop of water on a hot stove. From this point on, 
John only has one aim for William and Matilda de Bruges. He wants to ruin them financially and hound them to their deaths. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. When William Marshall talks about John, he calls his cruelty a disgrace. Marshall is in a very good position to know, because he's good friends with the Bruce family, and he has a front-row seat for the events that unfold once Matilda lets on that she knows what happened to Arthur of Brittany. This is clearly a subject that needles John, and it's not hard to see why. Everyone knows Arthur is missing in action. They also know he went missing on John's watch. But John seems to really hate being reminded of those facts. After all, it was the catalyst for him losing half his empire. And when one of his subjects has the temerity not only to bring the matter up, but directly to accuse the king of murder, well, that's where John draws the line. So by 1209, John is deep into a campaign of harassment of the bruisers. First, he turns the screw on them financially, by calling in all of the debts they've built up to the crown. William de Bruise Sr. doesn't have the ready cash to pay, so he starts off by surrendering a clutch of castles in the borderlands between Wales and England. Unfortunately, several of William's sons feel quite aggrieved about this. According to a later account written by John himself, 
as soon as the castles are handed over, the sons turn around and attack the royal guards who've moved in. Then they go on something of a campaign of terror, blowing off steam in classic medieval aristocratic manner. By burning towns and intimidating people, they think are loyal to their enemies. In this case, however, the enemy is the king, and John now has the perfect excuse to really go after the Bruises with the full weight of the law. William de Bruce realises that he's now in very serious trouble and legs it from England to his lands in Ireland, taking Matilda and their eldest son, young William, with him. Which is how William Marshall comes into the story. Because when the Bruises get to Ireland, they find that he's already there. Why? Well, think back to episode four of this season and you'll recall that Marshall had also annoyed John by talking him down from invading France and making side deals with the French king Philip Augustus. That had got John's back up, and Marshall had decided, quite sensibly, that it was best to get out of John's way for as long as possible. He had lands in Ireland, so he'd taken up more or less permanent residency on the Emerald Isle. When William de Bruce also flees to Ireland, the first door he knocks on is Marshall's. Remember that Marshall is one of the most respected and senior men in the whole of Western Europe. He may not be in John's good books, but John doesn't have the nerve to go to war with him. So Bruce figures he'll be safe from the King's men if he's under Marshall's wing. He is, but only for a while. Back in England, John is fuming that the Briuses have scarpered. He's also fed up generally with a whole bunch of other barons in Ireland, and by 1210 he's prepping a huge army to invade Ireland and settle the score with everyone who has displeased him over there. It's a distraction from his bigger goal of heading back to France to take on Philip Augustus, but John reckons it's worth the effort. By now, the Briuses have moved on to stay with other relatives, but William Senior decides that they should try one more time to make peace with John. He gets word to the king that he's willing to pay him the frankly ludicrous sum of 40,000 marks if he'll leave them in peace. There's not even much sense in converting that to modern money. Suffice to say, it's a figure that would have many commas and noughts after it. And more to the point, William de Bruce very much does not have 40,000 marks. John knows it, and he says he'll only consider peace if Matilda herself is handed over as collateral. William refuses. It's an impasse, and John's army is nearly ready to come to Ireland. Now in something of a panic, William sends Matilda and William Jr. on the run out of Ireland and over to Scotland, in the hope that they'll be safe there. They're not. Almost as soon as they arrive, they're captured by a Scottish lord, who, for reasons of his own, sends them as a gift to John. With that, the game is up. William de Bruce now has very few options left open to him. 
he comes back to England and arranges a meeting with John in Bristol. Triumphantly, John says he'll take his offer of 40,000 marks and he's going to hang on to Matilda and young William until it's paid. William Sr. is pretty much broken by this. He goes off to try and beg, borrow or steal whatever he can to pay John with. But it's a hopeless task. And before he can even make a dent in the debt, Matilda has another pop at John, telling him that there's no way her husband is ever going to raise the money. Just as before, this makes a bad situation even worse. John declares William de Bruce an outlaw. That means he can be killed on sight by any law-abiding citizen. William runs away to France and heads to Paris, where he tells anyone who'll listen at Philip Augustus's court what he knows about Arthur of Brittany's death, that John personally murdered his nephew. But they've already guessed as much, so the information doesn't buy him much favour. William is totally bereft and heartbroken. Within a year, he's dead. At the funeral is another of John's enemies, Stephen Langton. That's the man the Pope tried to make Archbishop, causing the row that led to the interdict. Quite what Langton is thinking as Briuse is buried is anyone's guess. If he ever gets to England, he's going to have his work cut out, staying out of an early grave himself. Yet Bruce's death is merciful compared to what's been happening to poor old Matilda and young William in the meantime. Once William Sr. flees England, John chucks his wife and son into a dungeon. Some say in Windsor, others in Corfe Castle. Wherever they are, they're treated appallingly. As we heard at the start of this episode, John has them deliberately starved to death. Young William dies first, and his mother Matilda is left in the cell with him until she dies too. The records tell a grim story. When the door is finally opened, the two of them are found locked in a grotesque embrace. Matilda has gone so mad with hunger that she's tried to eat the flesh of her son's face. The horror of this discovery is palpable, even as we read the chronicles all these centuries later. At the time, it must have shaken the whole aristocratic class to its core. And there, for now, ends the dark story of the Bruce family. Some of the children survive, but the dynasty is more or less ruined, just as John wanted, and within a generation, they faded into obscurity. As for John, well, he never gets his 40,000 marks, but he's shown, in his mind at least, what happens to people who cross him. He pays no attention to the reaction of other powerful families, but they are not okay with it. Discontent is starting to build with John's vindictiveness towards people and his more general extorting of his barons as a class. As William Marshall says, his cruelty is a disgrace. But in 1210, John doesn't care about any of that. The interdict and his ongoing theft of church property is still making him rich, 
and he's happy to keep grinding his boot heel into the face of anyone who has the nerve to defy him. So far, no one has worked out how to deal with the most diabolical son the House of Plantagenet has ever produced. But resentments among his people are building, and John is about to find out what happens when they reach boiling point. That's next time on This Is History. Before you go, just a reminder that the Plantagenet drama doesn't end here. If you get on This Is History Plus, then you'll discover that every Tuesday, when episodes drop, I also release an extra episode, full of weird, wonderful, and sometimes completely random stuff we don't have time for in the main story. What's more, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.